An Old Testament scholar recently spent months studying the Psalms, this uh, biblical hymn book that we sing from each week, and we're coming to focus on this particular part of this evening. He, He spent months reading the Psalms, and then afterwards he went through the top 25 contemporary Christian songs to see how they compared, and he found some pretty big differences He found that the poor, widows, refugees and oppressed were all completely missing from the top 25 Christian songs, whereas they're all over the place in the Psalms. He found that these popular modern Christian songs hardly ever spoke of justice or enemies while the Psalter is full of them. And he says that maybe most devastatingly, in the top 25 songs, not a single question is ever posed to God. But he says, prick the psalter and it bleeds the cries of the oppressed, pleading with God to act. Sometimes people think that the only difference between uh, the Psalms and more modern songs is is that the Psalms are older, uh, and yet the content is often radically different. Uh, And we see that in Psalm 29. For a start, this Psalm has a relentless focus on God. Uh, The name God, or or, uh, more often the Lord, occurs 19 times in these 11 verses. And at first glance, that that might seem disappointing to us if if we're looking here for the record of some human struggle that we can identify with. So this focus on God might secretly disappoint us. But let me tell you why this relentless focus on God is such a great thing. The surrounding Psalms are filled with David's troubles Uh, many of which we can identify with. But what this psalm does is lift our eyes off ourselves and the problems and circumstances that that surround us and centre our attention on the majestic Lord who is in control of all things. After all, what is it that will keep us going in the trials of life? Well, it's a big vision of God. That's what sustained martyrs like Stephen. In fact, in Acts chapter 8, Stephen, the first Christian martyr, quotes this psalm. He begins his defense there just before he's stoned by by speaking about the God of glory, which is a quote from verse, verse 3 of this psalm. So this psalm is different from many modern songs because it has a relentless focus on God. But it's also different because of how it begins, because it begins in a way that I would guess isn't found in any of the top 25 worship songs either. And that is that it starts with a call for angels to worship God. And that's what we're going to begin by looking at this evening. But just before we get there, just so you know where we're going tonight, the psalm divides pretty clearly into three different sections. 
It starts in verses 1 and 2 with the praise of the Lord. And then in verses 3 to 9, we see the power of the Lord. And finally, in verses 10 and 11, we see the peace of the Lord. So the, the praise of the Lord, the power of the Lord, and the peace of the Lord. And firstly, we see the praise of the Lord. The psalm starts with this call for the angels to give or ascribe glory to the Lord. The angels are described here in verse 1 as heavenly beings or, or literally as sons of God. Uh, the same language is used of the angels in Job 38.7 where God asks Job, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. So who is there when God lays the foundations of the earth? Well, well, no human beings are, but the angels are. And three times this call comes to ascribe to the Lord the glory due to him. To recognize him for who he is. When something's repeated three times in the Bible, it's very significant. It speaks of perfection. Such as when these same angels who are being addressed here praise God in Isaiah chapter 6 as the one who is holy, holy, holy. Every human being will disappoint us at some time or another, but God won't. And the angels recognize his majestic glory, the very thing that we as human beings so often fail to recognize and they respond in worship. And in light of the full biblical revelation that God is Trinity, that he is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I think that we would be justified in seeing this threefold call to praise God as a reference to our triune God. So the sinless, unfallen angels worship God. The very angels who human beings are terror-struck at when they appear, or that human beings attempt to worship when they appear, those angels worship God. We see most clearly what that looks like in Isaiah 6. Uh, a passage I've quoted already, as they cover their, their faces uh, and their feet with their wings and they call out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The, the whole earth is full of his glory. The angels worship God. But why do they need us to tell them to do that? Because it's not as if the angels have ever considered doing anything else. Surely, if anything, it should be angels telling humans to worship God. As the angel tells the Apostle John to in the last chapter of the Bible. Surely it shouldn't be humans telling angels to worship God. But for David who writes this psalm, calling on the angels to worship God is part of his overflowing delight in worshipping God and if you think about it when we find delight in something one of our first reactions is to tell other people that they need to do what we're doing we say you need to read this book you need to watch this tv series 
Even if they're already planning to, we still say, honestly, you won't regret it, just do it. Such is our enthusiasm that we want to spur on others. So I think that's one reason why, as we sing this psalm, we as human beings are calling on the angels to worship God. But there's more than that. Because the bulk of this psalm is taking up with the revelation of God's glory in the form of a thunderstorm. And so what's the connection between these opening, these opening two verses and the rest of the psalm? Well, I think it is that the angels witnessed the thunderstorm before we do. Uh, as someone has put it, uh, the roots of everything that takes place in this world are in the invisible world. The angels see things before we see them. And in light of that, we call them to do the only thing that's fitting and to ascribe to the Lord the glory and strength due to his name. So the angels are the first ones to witness this tremendous display of God's glory that we see here. Just like those in Australia uh, and New Zealand uh, and Christmas Island are among the first to welcome in the new year. We all get to experience it, but they, they see it before we do. And so the angels see the storm that God is sending before we see it. And when they or we see the works of God, the only appropriate response is praise. So we call on the angels to worship God. But though they get a glimpse, an early preview of what God is doing, never think that the angels are in a better position than us. Uh, the name Lord that is used almost exclusively in this psalm, I think it's 18 times it's the Lord and once it's God. The Lord is the covenant name of God. It's a name that we as God's redeemed people can use in a way the angels can't. Remember also how Peter tells us in his in his first letter that the gospel message is something into which angels long to look and so the angels praise God here as we do. Uh, but don't uh, be in any doubt as to who is in the better position. Because the angels don't know what it is to have a saviour. Uh, and while they're called sons of God here and elsewhere, they don't know God as father the way we know God through Jesus Christ. They are not adopted into God's family as we are. But though we have more privileges than the angels, the angels still instruct us. They instruct us here not by their words but by their actions. Because if the unfallen, sinless angels fall down before this great God, how much more should we Do we see not worshipping this great God as the, the great sin that it is? So firstly, we see the praise of God. We see worship in heaven as this storm begins. Uh, 
and we're singing about the worship of angels, something which, which we can't see but we know by faith is happening. But then we come to the thing that, that we do see and that's the storm itself. And so secondly, tonight we see the power of the Lord. The power of the Lord. If you're looking for a phrase to sum up, to sum up this psalm, it's hard to miss uh, the one that occurs seven times in seven verses. The voice of the Lord. And in the context here, the psalm is clearly speaking about God's voice in a powerful thunderstorm. Verse 3, the voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. Boys and girls, what is the loudest noise that you've ever heard? What's the loudest noise you've ever heard? Is it a, a motorbike? Maybe you've heard a, a helicopter taking off. Maybe you've heard fireworks going off and you've been scared. What about some of us who are older? Maybe it was a, a music concert you were at. And, and where you, you, were, you were standing or sitting, you, you could feel the ringing in your ears for hours afterwards. Maybe you've been somewhere and a bomb has gone off and you can still hear the echo of it. Well, in the days before aeroplanes, in the days before gunpowders, Thunder would have been the loudest sound that anyone would ever hear. And for David here, thunder is the voice of God. It's not the only, God of, not the only voice of God, of course. He, he knows that God speaks in Scripture above all. But when David hears thunder, he hears God thundering. And perhaps we think this all sounds a bit pre-scientific. But who is more blind? Is it those who see and hear God in his creation? Or those that chalk it all down to nature? Maybe even mother nature. In this storm, the voice of God thunders. As it, as it does in any storm. Uh, talking about God's voice being over the waters, it's most likely picturing the thunderstorm starting over the Mediterranean Sea before sweeping eastwards over Israel and over Lebanon to the north. Uh, so th- this morning we were thinking about Paul and Barnabas heading out west towards Cyprus. Uh, but here the storm is coming in from over the Mediterranean, sweeping in, in north, north and east. And the voice of the Lord seen in the storm is so powerful in verse 5 that it breaks the cedars of Lebanon. Have you seen the the redwoods in California? Uh, Have you seen pictures of massive trees with, with, with whole families of people standing with their arm outstretched around the trunks? And they're so big, they're so huge. These cedars of Lebanon grew to 70 or 80 feet tall, maybe more. The the trunks uh, sometimes could have a circumference of 30 or 40 feet. 
and they're, and they're, they're broken, they're, they're cracked in two, they're destroyed. Is it the wind that does the damage or is it the lightning in verse 7 where the Lord flashes forth flames of fire? Speaking of lightning, maybe it's both. In verse 6, it's as if the very mountains, Mount Lebanon and Mount Syrian, uh, another name for Mount Hermon, are shaking. Such is the ferocity of the storm. Then verse 8 describes the storm sweeping southwards towards the wilderness of Kadesh. In verse 9, the power of the storm, it so frightens the deer that, that they go into labour prematurely. They give birth early. The very forests are left in tatters. The forestry workers come out the next day and their, their heads are in their hands. But the only fitting response from humanity, which comes from those in God's temple, those who know him, is to see all this and to cry, Glory! Glory. And if that is not our response to the picture of God in this psalm tonight, then we have fallen short of the Holy Spirit's intention for us here. The description of this storm isn't so we can pick apart and analyse every part of it, but rather... God is piling up descriptions for us until we can do nothing else but cry out glory. Perhaps we were once scared of thunderstorms, uh, of some of those named storms that we we go through the alphabet with each year. We start off at A, uh, Storm Angus or, or whatever, and we go through them. Uh, perhaps they once scared us, or, or maybe we've encountered a, a tornado or a hurricane abroad. Those are things that can strike fear into us. We see the damage that they do. But this psalm invites us to see them as a majestic display of God's glory. Boys and girls, are you scared of thunder and lightning? Well, let me tell you about a man called Jonathan Edwards. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, well, he was a pastor, he was a minister, he lived in America uh, a long time ago. And he said that before he became a Christian, there was nothing that scared him more in the world than thunder and lightning. When he, when he saw that a storm was coming, they, they didn't quite have, have weather forecasts in those days, but, but, but when he could tell the storm was coming, he, he was scared. But then he became a Christian and the very thing that once uh, struck terror into him made him rejoice. Today there are people who are called storm chasers and if a storm is coming, uh, maybe other people are getting in their cars and they're, they're driving away from the storm so they can be safe. But storm chasers, they get in their car and they drive towards the storm because they want to see what it's like up close. Well, Jonathan Edwards, he, he wasn't quite a storm chaser, but he, he tells us that he would try and get in the best position possible after he became a Christian to see the storm coming. Uh, and this is what he, what he wrote. He said, to see the lightnings play and hear the majestic and awful voice of God thunder led me to sweet contemplations of my great and glorious God. He heard the thunderstorm and he said, that is my God speaking. 
Uh, and Jonathan Edwards says that when that happened, it was the most natural thing in the world to him to, to sing praise to God. You can almost picture him amidst the thunder and lightning sitting there in, in the vantage point where he can get the best view of it and singing because he hears his God speaking in it. Uh, and Edwards isn't the only one. Ch Charles Spurgeon said, I scarce ever hear the rolling thunder, but I begin to forget earth and look upwards to my God. I am unconscious of any feeling of terror or pain. It is rather a feeling of delight that I experience. And Spurgeon too said that he would sing in the face of the storm. I find that quite striking actually. There are two men, they, they live more than a hundred years apart and their reaction to the storms are, are almost identical because they would delight in God and they would sing. And I wonder if we become so modern that even as Christians we've almost lost our ability to hear God speaking in the storms. We've almost lost it, but let's not lose that. Parents, we need to help our children see and hear these things. When you see the stars, remind them of God's promise to Abraham. When you see the rainbow, remind them of God's promise to Noah. And when the storm comes, help them hear God's voice. Does all that mean that we can agree with those who say, well, well, I go out walking on a Sunday and the mountains are my church? Well, no, because verse 9 here says that it's all in his temple who cry glory. In his temple. As other parts of the Bible make clear, such as Psalm 19, God reveals himself to us in two books. There's the book of nature or, or creation, but also the book of scripture. And we can't rightly know or worship God apart from his revealed word. Creation tells us that there is a God. It reveals something of his majesty. It leaves us without excuse, but it can't save us. It can't tell us how to worship God rightly. And so the proper response to God's revelation of himself in nature in the storm is to come into his temple and to join with our fellow believers in crying glory. And to worship this majestic and terrifying God in the way he tells us to. Remembering that we can only come to him through Jesus Christ who is that, that ultimate temple, that ultimate link between heaven and earth. A powerful storm sweeping through the land. But it's in his temple that God's people cry glory. So we've seen the praise of the Lord. We've seen the power of the Lord. Thirdly and finally we see the peace of the Lord. The peace of the Lord. Why is it that we don't have to be scared of storms? Even of, of turbulence in aeroplanes? Well, because our God is in control of it all. How do we know that he's in control? Because he was in control of the ultimate storm. He was in control of the flood. The word flood uh, used in verse 10 
is used 12 other times in the Bible. Uh, guess, guess where? Guess which book? Well, all of them uh, occur in Genesis chapter 6 through 11. All of them are speaking of the worldwide flood of Noah's day. So we can be in absolutely no doubt as to what flood is being referred to here. David is looking back to, to the flood, the ultimate storm, the ultimate time when, when God battered his creation. And looking back gives David confidence for his own day. In verse 10, the word sit is used, in two, is used twice and used in two different tenses. And it would be better to translate it the first time as a past tense, as some versions do. Uh, the New King James is, is good here. Uh, so it would read, the Lord sat enthroned over the flood, uh, that is in the past, and the Lord sits enthroned as king forever. So, so the Lord uh, sat in the past over the great flood, uh, and today he sits enthroned still so, so, so the one verse looks back to God's sovereignty in the past over the floods and then it speaks of his ongoing reign today. He sat enthroned then and he sits enthroned today. And this reminder that God sat enthroned over the flood is important because the pagan gods didn't. It's well known that the pagan religions also have stories of the flood. Perhaps you've even heard of some of them, such as the, the Gilgamesh epic. Uh, and these, these stories were written by people who worshipped uh, those gods, those imaginary gods. But what do they tell us that their own gods were doing during the flood? Well, they tell us that their gods were terror-stricken at the deluge that they cowered like dogs and couched in dis crouched in distress, that one of them cried out like a woman in travail. So according to, to pagan mythology, the gods had brought about the flood, but then they were terrified at what they had unleashed. They couldn't control it. But how different is the true God? He sat enthroned at the flood. He was there. He unleashed it and he was in control of it. Far from running terrified, he was in complete control. At the most cataclysmic event in world history up to this point, he had been in control. In fact, the Greek word for flood is literally cataclysm. These other imaginary gods, uh, to use Dale Ralph Davis's phrase, they, they had divine nervous breakdowns. But as the cataclysm struck, our God ruled supreme. And so if the flood, the flood, if that's not going to shake God, nothing else will. He is the one who brings the flood and remains in sovereign control over it. What's the, the implication of this for us? Well, it's that if this same God is on our side, there is nothing we can't face. There is nothing that you can't face that God will call you to go through this week or this year or any year that he gives you. 
And so we can confidently sing in the last verse, as the ESV footnote puts it, I think it's more a statement than a prayer. The Lord will give strength to his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. And do you see how it's to our advantage to have a psalm that is almost exclusively about God, not about us? Because it's as we focus on God and his power and his sovereignty and his majesty, then we see our own challenges in light of that. And we're given confidence that this same God will come to our aid with the same awesome strength that he's shown in the storm. As the covenanter David Dixon put it, the power of the Lord is not against his people, but for his people. The awesome power that's unleashed unleashed in this psalm, it's not against us, but it's for us. And so we can rejoice in God's displays of glory and majesty. Not just because of what God does in nature, but because this same God is on our side for whatever it is that we're facing. And yet the unbeliever can have no such confidence. The power that's on display in this psalm should terrify them. Even the very thunderstorms should terrify them because the God of this psalm, the God who sends the thunderstorms, is against them. And the worst storm that they're ever caught in will be nothing compared to what hell will be like when they come face to face with the tree-breaking, mountain-shaking, forest-stripping power of God, without any hope that that storm will ever subside. Because they didn't take the offer of mercy that was held out to them in this life. The voice of the Lord on the last day will sound out against them in words that they cannot fail to understand. Depart from me, I never knew you. And just like the forests of this psalm, every pretension, every excuse will be stripped bare. As the word of God, the powerful word of God reveals every thought and intention of their hearts. And in his heavenly temple, all will cry glory. As John tells us in Revelation, the angel will say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and was, for you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And a voice from the altar will say, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. But this same God does not wish that any would perish. And so he has sent us out to bring his word to the nations of the world, to our families and friends and to this community. Maybe you think, well, well, people just aren't interested. But look at the power of the Lord's voice in this psalm. We need to look beyond the power of the storm to the power of God's inscripturated word. And that that is what we have to bring to this community, the powerful word of God. 
The book of Revelation begins with a vision of the Lord Jesus and John tells us that his voice was like the voice of many waters. And then immediately afterwards John is told to write down the words of the Lord Jesus to the seven churches of Asia. Real churches but also ones that represent all churches in all places in all ages. And God's word, God's voice It is a a double-edged sword. It comes in both judgment and grace. And so let's pray for those we know and love in our families and in this community. That they would hear the voice of the Lord as it really is, as powerful and full of majesty. And that in his grace the voice of the Lord would break through all opposition. Through the, the very walls that they're building up to try and keep him out. That even if the walls they're building are walls of cedars, that those walls would be broken down. Spurgeon says that the voice of the Lord can break hearts harder than cedars. Let's pray that they would come to know that the peace mentioned at the end of the psalm that only comes through the Prince of Peace. The Lord Jesus Christ, the one who willingly walked into the storm of God's wrath and who did so in our place, that he might be battered and bruised uh, so that we wouldn't have to be. And as a result, he is the only one who can calm the storm of God's wrath, which was once brewing for every one of us and is still brewing for us if we're yet outside of Christ. So the praise of the Lord, the the power of the Lord and the peace of the Lord. There is a storm coming for all those outside of Christ. But if we're found in him, we have no need to fear because we will be safe for all eternity. Amen. Well, let's now turn to sing this this psalm, uh, which I, I trust needs no further introduction. Psalm 29. On page 52. And as we call on these divine beings, or not divine beings, but heavenly beings, the angels, to praise God, may it be because of the overflow of what we do. And may we sing it prayerfully that this powerful voice of the Lord would break through all opposition to him. So Psalm 29, the whole psalm will stand and sing praise. <laughs> 